This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie, reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 177 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, Bumblefoot, I want to remind you about all of the features of MistressCarrie.com. Not only can you find every episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast and every episode of my video show, Cocktails in the War Room, but you'll also find the concert calendar with all of the rock shows happening around New England. You'll also find my blog, The Message, The Studio Button, allows you to send me a message right here in MCHQ and... You can shop in the online Mistress Carrie store. And with fall here, hoodies and beanies, they are necessary. And you can check out the three-quarter sleeve 70s retro Mistress Carrie jerseys in purple or black. Find all that and more at MistressCarrie.com. Ron Thal, otherwise known as Bumblefoot, is an award-winning vocalist, songwriter, producer, and a world-renowned guitar virtuoso. He's also an adjunct professor at SUNY Purchase College teaching music production. He runs the international Bumblefoot Music Camps, and he even makes his own hot sauce. And in his spare time, he's also the guitar player in Art of Anarchy. Their new album, Let There Be Anarchy, is set for release on February 24th of 2024, and their new single, Vilified, is available everywhere. If you have ever thought about learning how to play the guitar, this episode is for you. Bumblefoot walked me through where guitar tone comes from, 
how he writes songs, why he loves hot sauce so much, and we talked about the band Art of Anarchy and their upcoming new album. This episode is for the guitar players and for those soon-to-be guitar players. So allow me to introduce you to Ron Thal, otherwise known as Bumblefoot. Hello, Mr. Bumblefoot, Ron. What what am I supposed (laughs) to call you? Call me whatever you would like. Ron is fine, anything. Ron is good. Oh, yeah. I know what it's like to have like a a work moniker. And people will ask me, do I call you mistress? I'm like, no, you can just call me Carrie. So that's why I always ask. (laughs) So how'd you get the name Mistress Carrie? When I started on the air, I was doing nights at a very influential rock station in Boston, WAF, and the audience, I used to talk back then about a lot of stuff you would probably get arrested for talking about on the radio now. And uh, people would say, yeah, it feels like I spend every night with you. It's like you're the other woman in my life. My wife knows about it. You're like my mistress. And because I (laughs) look the way that I do, it just kind of stuck. So all these years later, here I am. Very good. Nice. Am I wrong in in uh, reading that you got Bumblefoot because your wife was studying for her veterinary exam and you learned what Bumblefoot was? Yes, that is correct. Uh, she was going to school. This is good. We've been together 33 years. No so way, really? Was, yeah, yeah. Wow. So back when she was in school and I would finish teaching, giving guitar lessons at the Samash Music Institute at 10 p.m. at night on Friday, drive all night down to see her and help her study all weekend. And one of the things was ulcerative pododermatitis, also known as Bumblefoot. So it was such a silly name. And, and so I just wrote a song. I got quickly inspired and I wrote a song called Bumblefoot. And then a few years later, when I had my uh, first record deal with Shrapnel Records, uh, the first album that I was going to put out, he wanted me to do an instrumental, all instrumental guitar album as my debut album. So I said, all right, let's call it The Adventures of Bumblefoot, and every song is going to be named after a different animal disease and and made this wacky album. And then after that, things started moving forward, and I had to start touring and playing out more and everything. So called the band Bumblefoot. It was a fitting name for a weird band with weird music. Uh, So after years of doing that, where I'm singing, I'm playing guitar, I'm writing everything, I'm like the face of the band, it became like a nickname. And now you can't get rid of it even if you wanted to. I'm stuck. Yeah. (laughs) With a Saturday morning cartoon name. Then again, I have a Saturday morning cartoon voice, so it kind of matches. Does anyone call you Ronald? Is that how you know you're in trouble with the family? Because I always know when they call me Carrie Ann that I'm in trouble. Mm -hmm. My mother will call me Ronald if I do something wrong. She's like, Ronald, put that down. I have the great fortune of interviewing a lot of prolific guitar players. And because I am not musically inclined myself, I'm always curious about when you picked it up. Was it your mom that gave you your first guitar? Where did you get it? So I grew up in the boroughs of New York. And we had just moved, I was five years old, we moved from Brooklyn over to Staten Island. And we moved on to the street where there were all these kids my age, and they all had brothers and sisters that were a few years older. 
and I would go over their house to play and, and there would just be albums all over the place on the floor and just everywhere there were albums. And I'll pick them up, look at this strange art of some Elton John album or a Beatles album or something. And, uh, and then I saw this one album that had these people with painted faces. And I was like, what is this? So I remember I was over at my friend Bob's house and we went up to his room and dropped the needle and stared at the speakers sitting on his bed like we were watching TV and just ingesting what we heard and it was kiss alive it had just come out and and i heard the crowd and and uh, everything and as soon as i heard that it's like that's what i want to do and immediately i started finding ways to do it i started writing songs i had nothing to write about i would just i was interested in the planets and all of that so i wrote songs like jupiter is nice was the first song i wrote <laughs> and Musically, I couldn't play anything yet. Couldn't I had and I hadn't heard a lot of music really yet. So I would just steal melodies from things I heard on the radio. So it, it was the song Fox on the Run from Sweet. And instead of going Fox on the Run, I was going Jupiter is nice. Boom, boom, boom. Take my advice. Boom, boom. I skate on the ice. Boom, boom. Jupiter is nice. And just made all these verses about how cool Jupiter was. And it is. But anyway, that's a whole other discussion. So from there, I started learning guitar. And my neighbor played guitar. And my brother was learning drums. And we formed a band. I originally wanted to be a bass player. And I went to take bass lessons, but I was too little. I was, basses were bigger than I was. So they lied to me and they said that I need to take two years of guitar lessons before I can switch to bass. So this way they got two years of lessons out of me. And I ended up just sticking with guitar. That's so really that interesting because I read a quote from Getty Lee that said nobody starts out wanting to play the bass. They start playing guitar and then the band needs a bass player and you get voted in. And there are very so few people that I have interviewed over the years that actually aspired to play bass first. Doug Pinnock from King's X was one. Oh, I love him. And now you're added in that list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doug is awesome. Gene Simmons. Yeah. Gene Simmons breathing the fire and uh, spitting the blood and the wings everything yeah so that made me want to be a bassist just like gene simmons so where did the first guitar come from did you have to get a job who bought it for you or did you steal it from the neighbors i borrowed one from a neighbor and then my parents bought me one when i started the guitar lessons just a little kid size you know and just kept going from there and then i started saving my money gifts from birthdays or whatever and to get more gear so i would buy like a demarzio pickup to wire into my guitar so it just sounded better and so when i was 12 i would paint iron maiden albums on the backs of dungaree jackets and charge like 20 dollars, 25 dollars, and that's how i would save up money to buy new guitars or amps or anything like that so yeah and meanwhile since I was a kid, I would find ways to do what a band needed to do. So in order to record and make demos, 
we didn't have a studio or anything. So what we would do when we were younger kids, have a cassette recorder, put it in the corner of the room. The drums would be 10 feet back. Our little kid guitars, we would be like two feet away from it. And we would record just the music. Then we would take a second cassette recorder. We would hit play on the one we just recorded on and have it just like two inches away from this one that we're recording on. And we would put our faces right here and we would sing along as the music played. So we figured out how to overdub vocals and make a, the next generation of the recording that had the music and the vocals now. And we would just do that as much as we needed to, to make our demos. You guys were recording so, like the early days of the Beatles with those little cassette recorders. Yeah, yeah, just figured out how to do it, just using what you have. And even back then, I learned a very valuable lesson that stayed with me, is, which is you don't need what you don't have. Whatever is around you, you can get creative with it and find a way to do what you need to do. You don't need a million dollar studio and a record deal or any of that stuff, especially now. But back then, just find ways to do what you need to do, be creative with it, and just do your best. It's That's amazing it. how many of us grew up in the early stages of what ended up to be our careers without us knowing with those little cassettes, because I had one of those too. And rather than like being musical, I used to walk around with the microphone and talk into it. And then I ended up doing what I do and you ended up doing what you do. And it's all because of those little, was yours the black one with that handle on it? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, big with a handle. Yes. Yeah. We had the same one. That was one. the one everyone had. Yeah. Yeah. So the, know, and it's so funny because if you think about it, you never really stopped doing what you were doing. Just the toys got better. Yeah. Technology got better. And your circle of who you do it with kept expanding. Yeah. You and I are still doing the same thing. We've just got way better gear now. Yeah. We're still the same little kids. <laughs> what was the first riff or song on the guitar that in those lessons you actually played right and you were like, oh my God, I think I actually am good at this now. Hmm. Okay. Well, I started off really just working on the academics and just learning to read and, and music theory and all of that stuff. And it wasn't as much about technique. I only had to be good enough to play my own songs that I wrote. But there were some things, in fact, I gotta go grab a guitar. Hang oh on. yeah. I love it when you guys grab instruments so you can explain to me what the hell you're talking about. Yes. I feel so, like I'm in a concert of one with Bumblefoot right now. This is awesome. <laughs> so one of the first things I remember being taught that wasn't just E, F, G, B, C, D. Uh, it was this. And I couldn't do it. I remember I kept going. I couldn't lift my finger off for just the one. Boom, boom, ba, boom, 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 boom. And I just had to practice and practice and practice. And to get that swing kind of feel. Boom, 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 boom. The slow gallop on the horse. Boom, 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 boom. As, you know, instead, a lot of people, they just, you know, it's very, they call them straight eighth notes. One and two and three and four and one and two and three and four. But you wanted to have that swing where that second uh, eighth note is late 
And it's almost like there's three notes, one, two, three, one, two, three, and you're playing the first and third of those. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Boom, 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 boom. And that is a swing feel. So, you know, lots of big band music. That bum, 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 bum. Without it, it would just be It doesn't have the swing, you know? So, and Van Halen, they just did this like cracked out super speed swing, you know? Otherwise it would just be When I interviewed Nuno Betancourt, he talked about the the funk of Van Halen being what inspired him so much. Totally, totally. And that was really that Eddie Van Halen did for a lot of people. Like Kiss got people interested in wanting to be rock musicians. But for guitar players, it was once we heard Eddie Van Halen, it's almost like there was guitar before Eddie. And then there's this line and there's guitar after and they're two different things. And yeah, so Eddie gave us all permission to be more creative and expressive and unique, where before him, we would just play bluesy riffs and melodies to complement the song. But after Eddie, it became more like, okay, this is my chance to sing and to be the true, you know, voice of the band, the, the focal point of it all, not just, I mean, other guitar solos were that, but this was a whole different thing. It was like, this is more of a very unique personality that is now part of, of the band. Nuno so, and Scott Ian from Anthrax also talked about how Eddie's always remembered for all of his solo work, but both of them talked so much about his rhythm playing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, his rhythm, he had the most incredible rhythm, the dynamics, the, just the pocket. I think it was growing up with a drummer makes a big difference because you have so, a guitar in your hand because you just said it and i i gotta stop you because scotty answered the same thing and i didn't know what he meant and i didn't ask him so because you have a guitar in your hands scotty and kept talking about pocket i'm not a player i don't know what he means by that so you're saying it too what does that mean okay pocket refers to where you play when there is a beat so let's say there's a beat boom ba. Boom, ba, just a straight up beat. Now, if you have a good pocket, that means that you're sitting right in there with the beat and grooving with it, and you're never jumping in front. You're like, you don't sound stiff. You don't sound nervous. Like you sound like you're completely connected to that rhythm. And it's almost like the rhythm is a hand smacking the water and you're the waves of that splash that happened with it. So, good pocket is first you have to have a good drummer and when you have a good drummer because if the drummer sucks the band sucks so good drummer that has a good solid groove and from there you're completely connected to that drummer like you're just one rhythmic entity and you're never falling away from each other you're just completely in sync with each other and you never jump in front of the beat you're just always just right with it yeah, so that is pocket. That's what that means. When a player has a good pocket, it's like they have that, just that good rhythm. That feel, 
that thing. If they don't have good pocket, they could be like, like they're just all over the place and they don't make you move. They don't make your head move. See, now I understand. Because yeah. when you're not a player, like I love music. I've spent my entire adult life in a career in the music business, but I can't play. I've tried. I tried to take a guitar lesson from Joe Satriani in the studio years ago. And he was like, you're never going to get anywhere because of your nails, Carrie. And I was like, Joe, I don't think it's my nails keeping me from playing. <laughs> I think the nails are just the cherry on top of the Sunday of failure. It's just well, not. Music is made to be listened to. That's why there's music. So you're the most important part of, of music. You're the one who hears it. Well, I always thought that you guys all knew how to read music. That it was that that if you could play, that you could read music and write music on the staffs. I mean, I, I took clarinet lessons when I was a kid, and I was shocked talking to guitarists of the caliber of guys like Nuno Betancourt that were like, I have no idea how to read music at all. So because you oh. took such lessons you can read it and write it as well, right? Oh yeah, I read it, I write it, it helped where, like in my early 20s, I had a job where I was transcribing instructional books for, for uh, like this music company. And even now, like I, you know, I'm working on a solo album and I'm gonna have a transcription book of the entire album, all the parts where it's the musical notation and the tablature as they call it, which is just more like, where is it on the neck? It's like six lines and, you know, a nine over here, you know, on the fifth line. It means you play ninth fret of the fifth string, like that version, but orchestrating and writing things out for an orchestra, uh, stuff like that, and making music for horror movies and all that stuff. That's where all of the uh, writing comes in. Sure, you could just use your ears and do trial and error, and you know it works from your ears. If it sounds right, it's right. But to know the language and be able to speak the language to other musicians, it helps to know the language and to be fluent in the language. And you could get very creative because of the language. I talked to Richard Patrick from Filter recently and he's working on film scoring as well. And we talked about his former bandmate, Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails, who obviously has been working in film scoring. And it's interesting to me how many rock and metal musicians have kind of stepped into film scoring as another outlet of their creativity. It, it seems like there's so much more of that than ever before. Yeah, because rock and metal, especially metal, is the most intense music there is. I mean, punk is intense and erratic. Uh, there's, you know, hardcore, but really metal in its entirety, the whole umbrella of metal. There is no other music that makes you want to jump into a pool of people and get, you know, bash each other with your elbows and, and nothing does that like metal. So that intensity, you want to be able to give that in music if you're going to be doing film music, especially horror films, which a lot of you know, metal and horror go together. There's certain things that go together with metal. Horror movies, wrestling, mm -hmm. and hot sauce. Yeah. 
Yep. Which I have and- zero tolerance for. Like, <laughs> I, a jalapeno popper is too hot for me. I <laughs> have seen so many guys backstage at catering with these just selections of atomic hot sauces just globbing it on stuff. And I'm like, how do you eat that? And we like to make it too. A lot of metal musicians are into making their own hot sauce. Yeah. And it's because hot sauce is the most intense food. It's like the heavy metal of food. You know, it is the version of flying elbows in a pit, but in in your mouth, in your stomach, nothing else will make someone run screaming around the room and drink bottles of milk just to try and put out the fire. Nothing will light you on fire. Nothing could be as sweet, as salty, as bitter as anything as hot food is, you know, spicy food is spicy, hot. So that's why we love hot sauce because we love giving people the most intense feeling they can possibly feel, whether it's music or food or whatever we could get our hands on. Jesse James Dupree from Jackal, I talked to him a couple weeks ago and because he sings the way that he does, he actually says that when his voice is giving him trouble that he'll go to like Taco Bell or something and get something with super hot sauce on it. And he thinks it helps his voice. Yes, everybody has different things. I remember years ago, I was in a band with a guy and he was in this other band with a singer to warm up his voice. He would grab a pillow and he would scream at the top of his lungs three times. It would completely tear up his voice and then he would go do the show. And that's what made him sound the way he needed to sound. I know some people that'll sit there and they'll just do these exercises like la, 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 like 45 minutes and then they go on. There are some people that will you know, eat a bucket of, of greasy chicken, uh, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Everybody has their own thing that gets their voice prepped for how they need to sing because most singing is unnatural. Speaking in itself is unnatural. We're just imitating the sounds we grew up with and that's our language and our culture and everything else, but it's not the right way we're supposed to make sounds. Uh, Really, the right way to make sounds is, is when your body is just this vacuous tube just pushing air out of your mouth and just doing like solfege, a, e, e, o, u vowels, where you really make them from inside without even moving your mouth, I, o, like without, and keeping this completely, like everything should be completely relaxed. And that just doesn't sound right for rock music, though. Rock, <laughs> you have to sound gritty and torn up and all, you know, kind of sound. But the natural way to sing is really more of just like, you know, opera singers, like that, that whole just clear, very, uh, like that's actual, like what singing is supposed to sound like if you're doing it naturally. But that is not cool. <laughs> so we don't sound like that. We sound like the people that we liked and we imitate them and have our own spin on it. And and then other people listen to us and they're gonna do it their way with whatever their physicality will allow, you know, that mixed with the inspiration. So that's kind of how it works. Yeah, so we have to do weird things to get our sound. You're a singer, obviously, but- but Only more opera. Classically trained opera, opera? Oh, I'm just, 
bullshit. Oh, I mean, I'm I like, wait a minute. Opera. No, no, I do sing opera, like, you know. That kind of stuff. But, you know, you get beat up if you do that. So, so it's more, I just sing a lot of old school metal with the high range from that. And yeah, yeah. But I sing, I sing. You're, you've been surrounded in your career with some pretty unbelievable rock singers like Scott Weiland, Scott Stapp, Axl Rose, now Jeff Scott Soto. It, I mean, these are legendary top tier vocalists, songwriters, frontmen, performers. That's quite a, a resume that you've built up of people that you've collaborated with over the years. I've hung out with some cool people. Uh, <laughs> they let me tag along on their ride. Uh, some interesting ones, yeah. When you get to play alongside a singer where you can hear their actual voice next to you, uh, there's, there's been a few special ones. I remember one time on, uh, was it Ship Rocked? Or one of the, yeah, I think it was, uh, Jeff Tate. And doing just a set, an acoustic set of just all, you know, his music and him. I mean, total inspiration. Uh yeah, who else? Operation uh, Mindcrime is one of those deserted island albums for me. Like a defining album in my love of rock and metal. Cool. So now, Art of Anarchy, the song Vilified. Did you know that all of those newscasts, we've been getting reports about blah, 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 in the song, it's Jeff Tate. No, is it really? Listen back, yeah. Yeah, Jeff Tate did all of those news broadcasts. So what we did is, here's crazy story. There's a lot of little Easter eggs to that song, little things like that, that people, a lot of people don't know. So first, just the way the band started back up and the way that song was written was this really <laughs> heavy story. So the band was kind of on permanent hiatus after having lots of turbulence with past singers. And then in 2019, right before the pandemic, John, the guitar player, John Voda, the band was formed by him. John and Vince, their twin brothers. John plays guitar, Vince plays drums. They've been playing together their whole lives. When they were teenagers, I would record them at my studio with their own bands. And, and then they just wanted to make their dream album. They came in here in 2011 and started recording and we were going to get all different singers to sing different songs. And they were just going to put out their own album for their own enjoyment, make their own record label and just to put out the album they always dreamed of for themselves. And Scott Weiland was the first singer that agreed to sing a song and he did such a great job. And then his manager said, why don't we make this a band? Let's turn this into a full band. So it was actually like Weiland's camp. It was, all their idea to turn this thing into a band. So then it became me and Wyland and the Voda brothers and John Moyer joined on bass. And we banged out this album. Wyland wrote and recorded all, all his stuff in like a month's time, just banged it out. And then when it was time to put out the album, he just distanced himself from it. And it was really to our surprise, like the whole thing. And then we put out the album, but we couldn't do very much when you know, the front man is saying, you know, that he wants nothing to do with it. So then we end up with singer number two and it's kind of going from the frying pan into the fire with that one. And at least we got to do a couple of shows, <clears throat> but ended up with 
a lot of problems. And uh, Bam was just on hiatus, you know, just permanent pause button if ever we would depress it. So now 2019, John gets sick. They don't know what it is, but his whole body is shutting down. Like he was just slowly dying for real, no exaggeration. He was going blind. He was choking in the middle of the night where he couldn't breathe. Like just random things in his body were just shutting down and they couldn't figure it out. Just every part of him was slowly dying. When doctors, it took them months to finally figure it out and they had to give him some like really aggressive treatment and the pandemic hit and he couldn't even get to a hospital to get the treatment. So it was this long situation of, of him just lying in bed barely able to get out of bed just with a guitar in his hand. And all he could do is just watch movies. So he would watch the Joker movie over and over and over. For some reason, that movie just kept his mind like that one just kept him going. That movie is nightmare fuel. Yeah. When a nightmare movie takes your mind off your reality, that's, (laughs) that means that your reality is in serious turmoil. And yeah, that movie really just, Something about it just kept him focused on something else and he would just be captivated by the movie and and he would play guitar to it. And from watching the movie with a guitar in his hand over and over, he started getting these like ideas, like musical ideas, like he would play the same parts to the same parts of the movie. And it's almost like he made his own little playing guitar movie score to this movie. And the opening scene to the movie that and the riff to it and everything was this thing when it went like a, which became the song vilified and and he that became like watching that movie while he was dying and just playing guitar to it is what became the song vilified so when he was well enough around mid 2020 july or so uh him and his brother, they came into the studio to record that, to make it a song. And from there, every Friday, they would come over for a good half a year and just we would leave with a song done. So we wrote a good two albums worth of music, just the three of us just writing together every Friday. And we did that throughout the pandemic. And during that time, Jeff Soto, who I was in with uh, Sons of Apollo, and he had said to me more than once, he had said, you know, you should have just had me sing in the band. You wouldn't have had any of those problems. Everything would have been fine. And he's right. Because working with him in Sons of Apollo, he's like the opposite of a nightmare singer. He's like the glue that keeps bands together and he's very beyond functional. I mean, he, you know, he's helps with tour managing when needed and and organizing and, and just sanity and delivers with no problems every show and every day. Uh, he's fantastic. So uh, finally, I just mentioned it to John and Vince. I said, you know, Jeff said that, that if you're looking for singer number three, and immediately they said, he's in. Because they, they love him since the Yngwie days, you know, first time yeah. anyone heard his voice. And uh, yeah, so that was it. So then 
said, all right, we have a bunch of songs here. And it was perfect because he likes writing to finished songs. He doesn't like to write to a song that's in the works. He likes when the whole music is done. And then he just looks at the whole thing, listens to it, gets a feel for it, and starts writing his lyrics and melodies to that. So that was good. Maynard and James Keenan write like, writes like that too. Yeah. Yeah, there's a few people that do it that way. Uh, so he wrote up the whole thing and we were good to go. And our bass player, John Moyer, after all the time had passed, he didn't want to continue with it. John uh, Moyer so, from Disturbed, for anybody. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. He was our bassist for the first two albums. And then years passed in between and life changes. And he didn't want to continue with the band. So I will love him. All good. Uh, so Soto, Jeff, he recommended his bass player from his solo band, Soto. And uh, Tony Dickinson, phenomenal bass player. Uh, he also plays in uh, Trans-Siberian Orchestra. And he just, he played on Mike Mangini's solo album that just came out. He's the bass player for that. He's done a ton of stuff and he's incredible. And he's a great guy. He, he does video game music, a lot of that. And so no brainer, right? You're in, go ahead. Mike Mangini's a local guy around here and we've yeah. known each other a very, very long time. And he's supposed to be, he promised me to come back on the show because when he came on the show, like you with the guitar in your hand, he did the interview behind the drum set so he could explain things while he was talking to me, which was really interesting to get inside his brain while he's playing the drums because I don't. He's got a brain. Yeah, and I don't understand how it works, even though I tried. <laughs> it's like little Einstein, a little Pythagoras, and a whole lot of insanely incredible drum playing yeah yeah it's crazy well i ask musicians all the time is it harder to be in a band or a marriage and i think your answer would probably be what every other musician's answer is that the band is harder a band yes absolutely in a marriage you have one wife in a band you have three or four that are way more dysfunctional than your wife is Absolutely. Yes. It is just a multi-marriage of dysfunction bands. Absolutely. Hilarious because I've always said that rock and roll wouldn't exist if women weren't bitches because you guys keep writing songs about us. <laughs> so the fact that the rock and roll is there yet we're the easier ones to be married to than your bandmates is kind of hilarious. And it works in the reverse because the female musicians I talk to tell me about what pains in the ass is their band members are and that their marriages are easier too. Yeah. 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 When someone's writing about a bitch, it's probably not their significant other. It's their <laughs> guitar player or their drummer or their singer. <laughs> Definitely their singer. Um, yeah. And they just don't want to tell the band. It's like, so is this about me? No, it's about my girlfriend. <laughs> and the whole time playing the song is like, yeah, it's about you, you asshole. Yeah. Well, the video for the song Vilified stars Cuba Gooding Jr. So not only does it have like the cameo appearance from Jeff Tate from Queensryche, but you've also got a hugely successful Hollywood actor in your video, too. Yeah, it's like a little mini movie. And we filmed it 
on those Joker stairs from the Joker movie. So, yeah, that wasn't like a prop or a lookalike staircase. But no, it was the actual same staircase where they shot that scene in the movie. So there's a whole lot of... That's why there's so many Joker references with this song. Uh, all the stuff about it and filming the video in that spot. Because that is sort of what kept John Voda sane and kept his spirit up in a weird way. And where the song came from. So it's very personal, all of that stuff. And you guys yeah. have said that this album is a little more sinister than some of the other music that you guys have made. It's more like the first album, which had no limitations or boundaries imposed on it. Uh, just did whatever the hell we wanted. And, and John and Vince are very old school metal influenced. And you could hear in all the guitar riffs, a lot of Megadeth Metallica type riffs. And now on this album, it's sort of back to that. Yeah. Uh, Let There Be Anarchy is the name of the new album. What is the release date? Are you allowed to tell me? I am allowed. It is February 16th, 2024. Nice. 2024 is going to be a big year for albums. Like the, the last quarter of this year and next year, I mean, we're living in a world where the Rolling Stones are releasing a new album. Like there's so much craziness in rock the pandemic was terrible for a lot of things, but obviously it forced so many creative musicians to work on new music. And now we're reaping the benefits of that. There's that's going to come out. I got a solo album that'll be out of all this crazy guitar music. And I got some nice guests on that. Um, the uh, keyboardist of Sons of Apollo. We also did some music together. Like he's doing lots of solo music and I'm playing on that stuff and things there. So yeah, it's going to be a very musical year. You're the perfect person to ask this. Where do you think a guitar player's tone comes from? Because you're all, you guys are always in search for like the perfect tone. So where do you attribute a guitar tone to come from? Now, that is a good question. And to answer that question properly, I am going to switch guitar. Oh, snap! So, where does tone come from? First, it comes from, comes a bit from the guitar itself. Uh, if it's a hollow body, if it's semi-hollow, if it's a very dense wood, uh, all of that stuff. You get a little tone from that, from the guitar pickups, talking about electric guitars. The pickups make a big difference. The volume potentiometers, the amount of ohmage, if they had 250, 500, or even like hot one meg pots, if there's a tone knob as well, the placement of the pickups, the more they are toward the center of the string. Now picture a string vibrating. It's kind of bowing as it vibrates, where the biggest amount of movement is in the center of whatever that vibrating length of string is. So if you're over here, it's gonna be moving tighter compared to here. So the pickup that's here is a lot brighter and you can even hear it if you just pick on the string. This way, it becomes more of a dark, warmer sound. So the pickup that's over here picks up that darker, warmer sound. So there's that. Then there's your amplifier. Okay, what kind of amp do you have and how do you set it? Do you scoop it out like a lot of 
metal stuff where it's a lot of lows, a lot of highs, and not a lot of mids? Or is it this rounder sound, what they call like the brown sound, which is more like Eddie Van Halen, where it's a lot of tone, uh, bluesier sounds, things like that. How much distortion and saturation? How punchy is the sound? Like, is it very, you know, or is it more just sort of softer? There is the angle of your pick. If the pick is perpendicular to the string, it will have more of a brightness to it than if you play angled. It'll be a little more scrapey compared to that. That's part of it too. There's how hard you pick. There's or that's part of it. There is uh, how much you roll your thumb down close to the tip of the pick, which causes different overtones to happen. And those things are included in the note as these like secondary tones that you don't really notice, but they flavor it up. So it's the difference between or when you have a lot of distortion, it doesn't disappear as much as it does on an acoustic. Like, you know that squealing sound that Zach Wilde gets? That's the extreme... You barely hear it on an acoustic. But it really comes through on a saturated amplifier. So there's all of that. So you have all of that going on that adds to your tone. Then you have subtle things that you do to embellish the notes, then the way you embellish notes is going to be with your left hand. Uh, if you take a note and right at the very end of it, you give it a slight bend, not enough to notice a change in pitch, but just enough to make it more like a voice, imperfect. That kind of thing. And vibrato, which is also makes it more like a voice. Uh, sliding into a note, which is more like a voice. Uh, all the bending. Where you're suddenly not just hopping over each fret and hearing them. You're bending, it's sliding into it. All of that stuff. So is that a tone thing? Well, it can be, because the way you move everything here, with the chirping and stuff. I'm hoping I can get this thing back where I can use the electric because this thing sucks for this kind of stuff. <laughs> with tone, because when a string is vibrating without anything interfering with it, compared to... That controls the tone also. Uh, that imperfection, that change in the speed of the vibrations. So all of these things make a difference. Uh, there's also who you're playing with, what sound you're playing to, because when you have a lot of sound going on, you know, there's a whole bandwidth, 20 to 20,000 hertz, that the human ear can supposedly hear from the lowest register, low end to low mids, to higher mids, to highs. And let's say you're playing alongside a drummer who's bashing his cymbals and all the bright range and everything, that is going to eat into the high white noise area of your guitar tone.
where you won't notice the kind of sound to it as much. You'll just hear the because it's competing and getting eaten by other things in that register that are just crushing it a bit. So that makes a difference too. You can have a whole bunch of bottom end on your guitar, but if the bass player is playing the same thing as you, you're, you won't really notice it as much because the bass is grabbing a lot of that and kind of squashing yours. Uh, and you might suddenly hear the mid-range more where there's nothing grabbing those that tonal range, that bandwidth range. So suddenly when you're playing with a bass player and, and a cymbal heavy drummer, you're scooped out high, low, not too much mid sound might actually sound more mid-rangey. Uh, so that makes a difference too. There's a lot of things that, that could make a difference. Well, I ask and, because it's, it's so hard for one guitar player to try and purposefully sound exactly like another one. They never can get it quite right. And it's because there's so many variables. Yeah, and overall it's also, it's in your hands. It's, that's a big part of it. You take any guitar player that has a very distinct style any guitar they pick up will sound like them. Someone else will pick up the guitar and it'll sound like that person. Because of all of those things in the playing, the stuff here, the embellishments that happen here, the way, the angle of the pick, where the pick is happening, the amount of overtones added, uh, the intensity of the attack, that makes a big difference too. And there's also the gauge of strings. Thicker strings have a different tone than thinner strings. Uh, there's a lot to it. So there's the instrument, there's the amp, there's the left hand, there's the right hand, and also often overlooked is, you know, who you're playing with at that moment. If you play just by yourself, you're going to hear everything. If you're playing with a screaming singer and a drummer going and a bass player that has distortion on his bass and is filling a whole, you know, heavy area of sound, your guitar is not going to sound the same as it does just by itself. So all of that is a role. I asked Doc Coyle from Bad Wolves when he was a kid how he knew he was getting good at guitar, and he said when it stopped hurting. <laughs> Building always, up those calluses from all of the rehearsals, he said when it stopped hurting, I finally figured out that, okay, I might actually be getting good at this. Ah, Doc is great. Great dude. Yeah. We actually, we have something that we played on together that I believe is going to be announced tomorrow. Yeah, we, we played together something that came out on the 13th, Friday the 13th. Lucky day. And let's say I'm trying to... Now you're busting out this crazy double-necked guitar, and one neck looks like a mirror. It doesn't have any frets on... Like, what kind yeah, of guitar is that? It is a double-neck fretted fretless guitar. So this one is more like playing on a violin or a cello. It doesn't have the exact pitch points, the frets, that divide the length of the string into the exact spots where you get all the, the 12 notes of the Western scale. This one is just completely... So it's like playing slide. Uh, Freebird, think of that. There we go, we got sound, we're back. Yes! So, so, fretted.
bumps. If you play with a slide, what you're doing is, instead of shortening the length of string from that fret, where it only vibrates from here to the end, picked up by the pickup, with this, it is the, this touching the string that does it. So you don't press down all the way against the frets, you just touch it to the string, and it stops the vibration. It only happens from here to here. So with that, With a fretless guitar, you don't need the slide. Everything you play is like a slide. So you have. So it has nothing in the way. It's just completely, complete freedom. It amazes me when I watch people. I interviewed Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick, who was sitting there with a guitar, like so many guitar players. And to me, it would seem like this unattainable goal to create something new because, you know, there's always been the joke that, like, Tony Iommi wrote every heavy metal riff. There aren't any left. And so yeah. when you pick it up... Finding a new sound, a new riff, a new something just seems to me like this overwhelming challenge that would cripple my brain. But for a guitar player, it doesn't. You know, there's only so many notes and the instrument is limited to its, you know, just what it is. So there's only so much we can do. But every spirit, every human being is different. So when that is added into the equation, it makes the playing different. So yeah, we're all playing the same notes for thousands of years, but it doesn't all sound the same. That's the thing. And there are technological or just instrumental changes that can happen uh, that make a difference. I mean, there wouldn't be metal if they didn't figure out how to drive amps and really push you know, the maximum amount of preamp tubes and things. So that plays a big role. Technology leads to new styles of music. Uh, but yeah, as far as the playing, uh, everyone has their, their little things they do. Okay, back to those squeals. That sound, that is the overtone. Without it, if you don't do any of that, if you give it vibrato, if you Pinch it here. It's a totally different thing. Without it. That screaming. Yeah, that's the overtone. And, and even having just subtle bits of that in while you play is part of your tone. So instead of just going, uh, if you have just a slightest bit of overtone pinch in the area of wherever your hand is sitting. It has this little extra thing on top. That whole thing. Uh, yeah, and then there's also, you know, if 
you don't just have to pick and play like this. There's, you know, legato play where it's just one-handed, just and using extra fingers from here uh, in all different kinds of ways. All the tapping stuff, there's Eddie, you know. So there's all of that. One thing I experimented with years ago is, you know, I didn't like that the fretboard ended because the notes keep going. You just can't get to them. So I wanted to find a way to be able to access those notes. So instead of pushing the string against the metal fret, I keep a metal thimble and a magnetized hole that keeps it in place on my guitar that I keep here and I use it to get the rest of the notes so that I can get all the way up in the range. And you just, yeah, so you can get all kinds of weird fucked up things that are way past the range. And the thing is, the way a guitar works is you're shortening the length of string and we usually do it in this direction using the fretboard. But if we were to move this piece, which we can't, this direction, it would shorten the length of string the same way. So let's say you want to shorten a length of string this much. You just want to go like this. You can shorten that length of, that same piece of string, shorten it the same amount from here. So that means that you could play from both directions. So that's what I do with this, is I play from two different directions. Instead of going like this, where I'm taking a length of string that's this long, to this long, to this long, to this long. You can take the last bit of it, this much, put it over here. And you hit it here. And it's like a fretless, you can slide it. Like that. So that's my weird little thing is besides the fretless, I play from both directions of the string beyond the fretboard using a little mobile. A thimble, yeah. like a grandmother's sewing thimble that you stick in your guitar. Yeah. 99 cents at Michael's Arts and Crafts. <laughs> Well, there are certain guitar players like the aforementioned Tom Morello that look at the guitar and go, okay, I get it that this is what the rules are supposed to be. And now I'm going to just like pull it apart and figure out what other kind of noises it can make and break all of the rules. Yeah, he greatest with that. Just all kinds of new sounds that he brought out of it. Definitely. And that's what it's about. Yeah, it's get creative with it. See what else you can do. I always yeah. ask musicians and songwriters on the show, is there a song, and it can be any genre, any artist at any time, that you think is a perfect example of songwriting as a craft? A song that you covet and wish you wrote because it's the perfect example of songwriting. Do you have an answer to that question? That is a tough one. Uh, 
You know, it's weird. There was only one time in my life that I was jealous of a song where I actually wished I wrote it. It was the first time I heard the song Wood from Alice in Chains. Now, that's, I mean, it's, I'm answering a different question, really, but that, like, it was the only time in my life. I mean, I grew up on the Beatles and Tchaikovsky and all kinds of shit and, and you know, just amazing music, Chopin and everything. Uh, yeah, there's just a whole history of humanity's music at our, you know, at our disposal. Uh, and for me, it probably goes towards uh, like Queen and the Beatles and things like that, very musical things. Uh, but as far as the, the only time I could actually say, wow, I've never felt this way before about a song, was the first time I heard the song Wood when it came out. Uh, I don't know what it was about that song. I just, it's like, to me, like, that's exactly what I wish I sounded like, I want to sound like. And they, they wrote it, and I wish I wrote that song because uh, I just, yeah. And, but perfect songs, that is a tough one. That, I mean, it's almost impossible. There are songs that just haunt your, your soul. Uh, Strawberry Fields, the cello lines, and just that, you know. That thing right there. And then the horns, just that, that sort of, what's even the word for it? So much going on in the song, the backwards stuff. It sounds so even... metal, and I'm a huge Beatles fan. It comes up on the show all the time, but Strawberry Fields has never sounded so metal before. Oh, it's metal. If you listen to what's going on there, like you have so much going on. You have this low tom in the background that's playing just like with the beat that just makes it very. Uh, uh, that the the those ominous cellos and the horns just hitting like like uh there's like almost like I don't know what the word is like like warnings uh war cries things in there and then there's so many different so much instrumentation from different places you have you know an eastern sitar then the horns do it in the slowed down voice of you know just in the, the reverse almost like footsteps which is just drums and they flip the tape which at the time was something that human ears they never heard before there was no possible way to hear time go in reverse until the 60s until they had the, the technology in the studio to and the will to be experimental and flip the tape and suddenly hearing all, this, all these sounds that were not part of nature they, they can't exist it's time going backwards uh, and captured and played forwards uh, hearing it backwards and putting that in with forward music and just the chord changes where everything goes and, and even rhythmically 
um, where you have one and two and three and four, and then suddenly you have this triple things. And that's another cool thing the Beatles always did is they would divide the rhythm, which is normally two or four, and they would just throw in three out of nowhere. So, so you have. That they didn't like take it to ride every second half of every measure. It was like one and two and three triplets, one and two. And three. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three. And they're just dividing one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three. Like if it was a spinning clock, it would be like three, six, nine, twelve, four, uh, or I should really say. 12, 3, 6, 9, 12, 4, 8, 12, 3, 6, 9, 12, 4, 8, like that. Like it's, they really fucked around with time in cool ways and subtly that just gave things this nice drag. And they started really around Rubber Soul, I think, doing stuff like that. Just that, uh, yeah. And then you started hearing like Motown doing it. Groove is like boom 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 boom, but they have going with it. And that actually that goes back to Chopin, who was doing three against four on the piano, where one hand would be going triplets and be going like one two three 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 one two three. The other one's going one hand two hand three hand four doing. At the same time and yeah and just playing with with the math and having divisions of time at the same time against each other like that is very it's you know it makes the brain happy in little math spots well they so, say that music and math is the same part of the brain which is probably why i'm not a musician because i suck at math <laughs> music is is the math of nature it's the math of the universe it is uh yeah. Well, I'm a fan of the math of the universe. I'm just not a creator of the math of the universe. You get to just enjoy it. That's right. That's with the, the crazy, dysfunctional multi-marriage. <laughs> well, the new album comes out in February. Does that mean that the band is going on the road? What are the plans for 2024? Oh, our booking agent is looking into 2024, seeing what is going to be possible. We're hoping we can, you know, team up with some bands and, and get out there and, and do a lot of playing. Yeah. So we'll see what comes down the pipeline, but we are definitely, the band is eager to get out and play and play and play. Yeah, we want to hit the road. Well, I linked... Yeah. Um all of the Art of Anarchy links in the show notes of this episode, including the video for Vilified featuring Jeff Tate from Queensryche and Cuba Gooding oh. Jr. Voice is in the song, but he's not in the video. Oh, he's not in the video. Oh, okay. So it's in the it's in the song, but not the video. 
Yeah. So those news clips that he's like those things that he's saying in there are from actual news broadcasts and he reset them. So we took actual news broadcasts when the movie came out and people were saying that this is going to lead to real world violence and all this like, you know, just fear mongering of, of a movie. And then Jeff Tate, he just reset them all in that, that mind crime empire voice. And yeah, so, so Cuba Gooding Jr. is in the video. Uh, the band is in the video. In the song, Jeff Tate is narrating in those spots. So yeah, a lot of little things in there. Thank you so much for the guitar lesson and for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. It's fascinating to me, and I know for a lot of us that love music but can't play it ourselves, we always wonder kind of how it all works, and I think we all have a better understanding of it after hearing you talk about it today. Oh, very good. And I'm sorry about my technical difficulties I had. I hope it didn't screw anything up. Nah, it'll sound fine. It's all good. Good. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was so nice to meet you, and we'll see you soon. Great. Have a good one. There he is, Ron Thal, otherwise known as Bumblefoot. The new Art of Anarchy album, Let There Be Anarchy, is coming out on February 24th, and the new single, Vilify, is available everywhere. You want to check out the video for Vilify? Just check the show notes of this episode. While you're there, you'll also find the links to find Bumblefoot online, to find Art of Anarchy online, to find Bumblefoot's hot sauce, and all the Mistress Carrie links are there as well. You'll also find the link to this episode's corresponding playlist. I make a playlist for every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast that features all of my guest music and all the songs and artists that we referenced in the interview. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, plus every weekday you get the sit rep. It's all of your rock news, music headlines, and entertainment updates in about five minutes. And you never know when we're going to release a bonus episode. Get the details on all that and more at MistressCarrie.com. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.